Hello and welcome to our Gem Pursuit. My name is Matthew Weldon and I'm joined in our magical and mysterious pursuit to the world of antique and vintage jewellery by my trusty co-host Elise Ketcher. Hello Elise. Hello everybody. We had hoped you enjoyed our series about the dead arts but of course we couldn't stop there and as is customary we tend to do a bonus episode and today is no different. We have a gift giving dates back well over 40,000 years as we'll come to and is synonymous with jewellery. So today we're going to have a look at the long and enjoyable history and the most famous gifts in history. So Matthew, we thought for gift giving, we would go down a little competition route to see who could find the most tantalizing gifts of all time. I've got my three. I'm pretty sure that um, I'm going to win. I don't know, Elise. As is customary, as you said at the beginning. Yeah, it's always a tough competition, but I have to say I've actually have four gifts in my list today. So. Got, it, it, quantity is has got nothing to do with it. It's all about quality gifts, quality people. I'm glad you said that because just before we get into our top three gifts, I'd like to start by, in the customary fashion of giving gifts, I'd like to give Elise a gift this morning. So here you go, Elise. <laughs> there you go. A, is that a cookie? And oh. it's warm. Okay, you win. <laughs> and we're finished to eat the cookie. No. Um, Thank you, <laughs> I am a cookie monster, people. So yes, no, we have three. I don't know. Do you want to go with your first one? Or maybe, what do you think? Okay, I'll start off with my first gift. The first gift that I chose today is a very famous gift that not a lot of people would recognize as a gift, but they would recognize the actual style icon on which it sits. And this is Coco Chanel and her pearls. So Coco Chanel, a style icon known for many things, including bringing in the kind of minimalistic look, which in fashion today is continues to be, you know, the norm and the, the type of silhouette that women all over the world prefer. But she also brought into fashion the tan. So sunbathing became quite a normal thing for the elite to do during their summers due to Coco Chanel. So hold on, before this, sunbathing was not a thing. Sunbathing was not for the elite. Tanned skin was not seen as beautiful. It was seen really as a worker's glow. So it was seen as common and not something that was chic. But she's also known, so tan skin was uh, something that she brought into fashion as well. Um, Hello, skin cancer. Uh, So be careful out there with sunscreen people. Um, She also was known for her many liaisons with different men of power. One in particular was the Grand Duke Dmitry Pavlovich, Mm -hmm. who um, fled um, the revolution in Russia in 1917 for his life and, of course, was the heir to the Russian crown due to the death of the Ro- the rest of the Romanov family, um, but was able to take with him many jewellery items as he fled to Paris. Oh. 
Coco Chanel being the very demure and alluring woman that she was, quickly became fast friends and a little bit more than friends with our little Russian friend here (laughs) and was gifted a beautiful pearl necklace that was from the Romanoff collection. So this is where her pearl, this is where her pearl journey really begins because how do you get much better than a Romanoff pearl necklace? Setting the bar pretty high. Right. You know, like what other gift is going to come close to that? And she's famous for her pearl quotes, which, is, you know, like I, she would refuse to go to the Atlier without her pearls. She said a woman should wear ropes and ropes of pearls. I mean, I would wear ropes and ropes of pearls too if I was wearing Romanoff pearl necklace. But that is the first gift that I'm going to just throw on the table there, Matthew, a Romanoff pearl necklace. Well, I think that's starting the competition very strongly. And and that's uh, the smallest gift that I have, by the way. The smallest. Just a little Romanoff pearl necklace. Your turn. Yeah, well, your size isn't um, everything. But moving on from that, the, <laughs> that is a great one to start. And Coco Chanel, we've come across her before in a few podcast episodes in our previous seasons. Very interesting character divisive probably as well. And there is also currently running in the V&A Museum a full exhibit that is, or exhibition, that is actually on her collections. So her original fashions, her vintage jewellery that she had help with from Vidura, and that is currently running until the 25th of February. Wow. Brilliant gift. Good start. I've gone a slightly different route. Okay. So I've got three gifts and I've gone in age. So how the, oh, I'm going to go from the oldest to the most recent to show how broad gift giving is and how far back it goes. So I got some beautiful jewelry within these three. So the first one I'm going to do is, well, it is a pendant or an amulet. Dates back over 40,000, 35 to 40,000 years so we're talking, this is one of the first ever pieces of jewellery that's actually been discovered. And even more than that, some of the earliest examples of figurative design in human history. So this is a really important one, not just in terms of jewellery, but in terms of gift giving and also human evolution. So pretty important. But it comes from the Hollefels region in Germany, uh, which is famous for the discovery of these figurative designs. It's called the Venus of Holofels. And if anyone's ever seen this, it's uh, it's quite a striking design. It's the female form. It's carved out of ivory because obviously at the time, we're not talking about elephants or any of those things. Woolly mammoths it was typically what was actually used at that time because not only were the tusks useful for a variety of tools and practical purposes, obviously the fur and the coat as well. So dating back to Germany in the Swabian Alb region, this particular piece is quite unusual because there is no head on it, right? If you look at this, the rest of it is definitely there, right? But instead of the head, there actually is what we term in jewellery world as a bail or a clasp for a necklace, which probably would have had some sort of twine or ribbon that would have went through uh, or cord possibly, 
and that would have actually held it as a pendant. So it would be quite a large pendant, but this is so important because it, it shows that even at this stage, both jewellery and gift giving was part of human culture in terms of appreciation, connection to your tribe, super important. And just like today, like jewellery serves a lot of the same purpose, which I think it just blows my mind to think that although so much has changed, human behaviour is still relatively uh, relatively the same, more or less. And well worth looking up if you've never seen this uh, 40,000 year old piece of jewellery. And I think that's a pretty important gift. It definitely is. I really, I was laughing when you said this because it's supposed, I, I know the piece that you're talking about, right? You haven't described it. And I, it's probably because you don't know which part to begin with, but she's, she, it's a, it's a goddess, a figure of a goddess Venus. And she has short legs but her whole belly area is like abundant and full. So she's very rotund and she has uh, quite large breasts, but they're also like, you know, they're not what we, today we're kind of like striving for perfection, right? People want things to look like they're not real. This figure looks real. Like she she is beautiful and she is real and they were celebrating that. And I think that's, what's really beautiful about this piece is not, they haven't got lost in perfection. They've actually highlighted what nature has given and showing it as beautiful. So there's two in our list of six. So into your second one, only one more to go after this, Elise, what is your second gift you want so to talk about today. I based everything off of kind of like gifts that I would like to receive. Okay. So Coco Chanel pearls <laughs> is a yes for me. Number two on my list is first off, I'm going to start off with the, the background of the gift. Okay. So let's just imagine in the, you know, it, we're in Spain in okay. like the 18 going into the new century. So we're in at the beginning of the 19th, 1900s. We're going to a wedding that is in Madrid and it's of King Alfonso the 13th to Victoria Eugenia of Battenberg. And this particular wedding is being attended by aristocracy royalty from all over the world literally are coming to Madrid to this particular wedding. During the festivities of the wedding, guests are also going to different well-known hotspots as you do when you're traveling abroad to see some of the local talent. So, you know, they're being entertained at shows, they're going to bars, they're eating at restaurants, just like we do today. And at one of these entertainment spots, two sisters are performing the flamenco dance and they're extremely skilled. And prior to this wedding, they've been performing for masses of people and have gained a name for themselves as beautiful and also talented in terms of the way that they can move their body. One of the sisters captures the special attention 
of a Maharaja. And it is said that he, the 34-year-old, instantly falls in love with the dancer and pursues her and she's like, scram, like scram. But he's continually pursues her even when he has moved on from Madrid and is in Paris. And she finally comes around. She's like, her, because her family comes from a line of restaurateurs. So she's not from aristocracy. She's not from that world. But she's like, hmm, maybe I could see myself in a life of, you know, with a Maharaja. So she then relents to his advances and she moves to Paris and then become, then she gets taught in all the ways of how to become a Maharani, which is a wife of a Maharaja. And she learns how to speak French. She learns how to um, conduct herself. Um, she's in her late teens, so she's been molded into the Maharani of the future. And she finally then goes to India to marry in a Sikh ceremony, marries the Maharaja, and then uh, finds out that she's actually the fifth wife and not the first. (laughs) So that might have gone down like a lead balloon, but the fifth and supposedly the favorite. Um, So this is the Maharaja Kapathala, Kapathala. If I'm saying that wrong, I'm sorry. Uh, When she marries him, her name changes from Anita Delgado to Prem Kur, which translated is love of a prince. So her name becomes love of a prince. During one of the festivities that she is invited to, she notices an elephant And it's the oldest and the most beloved elephant of the Maharaja. And she sees on the forehead of of the elephant this dazzling, transparent green stone in the center of the elephant's head. And she's like, why is an elephant wearing that? I should be wearing it. And so she goes to her husband, I want the jewel on the elephant's head. And he's like, it's a bit too big for you to be wearing. And she's like, no, I want the jewel on the elephant's head. Anyway, he's like, no, it's a bit too big. I don't think it should, you should be wearing it. He then strikes a deal with her, right? I'll gift you this. And it turns out to be an emerald that's on the elephant's head, people, an emerald. He says, I'll gift you this if the condition is that she learns Urdu which is his language. Yes. He goes, if you learn Urdu, then I will gift you this emerald. Believe me, I would learn Urdu too. I'd be in here every single day. Give me every Urdu book you can find and a tutor and I'd be learning it as well for this emerald. She learns it within a year, right? And on her 19th birthday, she's gifted the emerald, which stays in her collection all of her life. She turns it into, she gets it actually designed to wear it on her own head as a form of foreignure. So foreignure is something that it's not a tiara, but it sits right across the forehead. 
and the emerald sits in the center of her forehead. Now we've got in the show notes, um, we've got a link to this particular piece. It's now unfortunately being put into a brooch and it was most recently sold in auction at Christie's in 2019 for 471,000 US dollars. That actually sounds quite reasonable, I think, for the provenance of it and the size of that particular emerald. So, Yeah, but a really, really cool piece that also has like such a crazy backstory. Really interesting backstory. And definitely, I know we love brooches. In fact, brooches are some of the first pieces that you see, but foreign euro that it would... Oh, yeah. I've only, I don't think I've ever seen one of those in the flesh. So yes, that would be preferable as a piece to see for sure. So, oh, wow. I don't know if I can compete with that. Um, no, really interesting. I've still got one more, Matthew. Yeah, no, that that's a well worth looking. And interesting also, I think, to have this sale of it. You know, it makes it so current, I think, that you can still see that it's actually been purchased purchased and yeah. still available well it's not available for sale right now but it was yeah well yeah that's a tough competition but going forward as i said we're gonna uh, i'm gonna go with the age so we went back to forty thousand years ago we're coming back into the start of this millennia so the year zero depending where you are in the world i suppose and this particular gift is definitely one to think about because we all intuitively know about us and it's one of the one of the things in the whole world that no matter where you go, this is precious and valuable. And that's not the same. Some things that are are valued in one place actually are not that valuable in another place. Like for example, you know, fine jade in absolutely. I was going to say China jade is like take the most valuable gemstone you could think of and multiply it by a few times. That's how valuable jade is there in the Irish market. If someone came in with really good jade you know, most shops wouldn't value it at all. Now we have an international market, so, you know, we know, but generally it's it's not as valuable. So, but this particular item is. So what I'm talking about, of course, is gold. And the particular gift of gold, is, <laughs> as one will all know, is of course the biblical magi, the gift of gold at the birth of Jesus Christ, right? So the gifts that started it all, Matthew. Certainly in this neck of the woods anyway, but this story it actually is in a lot of holy texts, slightly different versions of it, but this event, it will pop up in many different ones. So what's interesting about this though, so what I always thought of, you know, the, the three wise men as it came to be known, actually there is debate whether it was actually three or whether it was more. No, no one actually knows, but the, the story eventually transpired to have three because there was three gifts. So I think they assumed that there was three people, but there could have been more. But there were gold, frankincense and myrrh. Now, I actually, when I was looking up this particular gift, I actually had no idea what frankincense and myrrh was. I really didn't. I had no idea. Did you actually, have you ever come across it before? Frankincense is a, like a perfume. And myrrh is like a medicine. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's, 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 well, there goes my next few. No, no, that's, that's exactly what they were. And, but like during the, those particular times, they would have been literally for kings. Like they were for the, like 
not even elite. We're talking about people, you know, in those times, rulers were considered the gateway to God, you know, so like only gods of that time had the access to those things. And that is exactly what gold is a symbol of. Exactly what you said. Gold is a symbol of kings. So that's obviously why the the gold was such a precious gift. And then it obviously has spiraled into many different ways. And yeah, frankincense is a resin. Basically, it can be medicinal, but it's more for the, the fragrance. And if you actually, as a francophone, if you listen to it, Frank obviously is a der- derivation from a French word. Frankincense is high quality incense. So, and then it obviously just became anglicized to that word. And myrrh is medicinal, of course, newborn child medis- is super important. And that's actually why a lot of, a lot of items in antique silver that are designed for children are, sorry, are made of sterling silver because it is an antiseptic quality, right? So anything with those qualities was always great for a newborn, right? So, but what's interesting about gold then is that it started there but it's gone everywhere. Santa's first gift was gold. Cool. He used, he used to throw bags, little bags of gold into people's houses. Uh, now, I've actually never... Um, hello, Santa. I want some of this action. Yeah, well, he's more into <laughs> PS5s and things like that at the moment. But um, <laughs> no, but, and again, the symbolic of it, uh, uh, importance of gold there, very evident. In Chinese culture, the most significant gift that one can give is gold. It symbolizes luck, prosperity, fertility. So pretty important. And I think it's hard to come across a more important gift than that. Of course, you'll disagree, I'm sure. (laughs) But that's my second one anyway, Elise. So what have you got? Number three. Now, this is an important one because this is your last roll of the dice. Yes. Well, I kind of, like I said from the beginning, I've gone with things that remind me of myself. So <laughs> I, I, I went with really like, and cool things. And we also want you to tell us listeners what your favorite gifts of the, of the six that we've chosen, what you would like to receive or what you thought was a cool story, or if you've received a really cool gift as well during the festive season and want to let us know. We'd love to hear your stories. Um, And you can do that via our email or on our website, all in the show notes. But my last gift is not relating to jewellery. Well, it kind of is and it kind of isn't. So, but I'll tell you the story now. So this particular story begins in 1837 in Tuscany upon the birth of a Italian girl called Virginia Odolini. And she's born to a very minor Tuscan nobility with links to politics and things like that. But, you know, unless she marries somebody who has a better title than herself. She's going to become quite obscure and, you know, she might have a little footnote somewhere in history, but and nothing crazy. But I guess they never would have imagined what her life would be um, when she was born in 1837. But she did secure a title from a marriage when she married 
a cousin of hers and it, she then became the Comtesse de Castellonia. She, you know, endeared herself, I'd say, to all the right people um, and had a, a lot of charisma. So she was like noticed when she walked into a room. She was supposed to, at the time, be the most beautiful woman that that the aristocracy had ever seen. So she was in all of the right circles. She knew how to carry herself and then loved the attention, right? So love that I'm not talking, this is not about me. This part's not about me. Okay. This is just, this is about her. (laughs) So her cousin at this time was set in Paris and could see that she would actually be used as a political tool. He was like, she's persuasive, she's beautiful, she captures the attention. Let's try and get her in with Napoleon III and see what he can do for Italy. Strategic. She goes into the Parisian circles and, of course, Napoleon III is interested. Every man is interested, but Napoleon is interested and they start a relationship. She becomes his mistress. She then starts to, you know, she starts to be seen as a have have a bit of an erratic behavior, right? She goes to oh. parties and she's seen as like, you know, scandalous. She's a mistress, but she's married. She has a son and she's, you know, she's supposed to be handling herself in a certain type of way and she's not. She's rebelling against that. She's refusing. This all culminates to a party or a dance, let's call it a dance, that she's invited to on the 9th of February in 1863. Now, as is customary of the time, most of these balls and parties are themed or you have to come dressed up. And she is also at this time become, became the most photographed woman of all time. Right, there's over 700 photos of this woman. So Virginia's that's been very early on in exactly the history of photography. Exactly, very early on. If you want to see some of the other pictures of her, we've got a link in our show notes. The Metropolitan Museum in New York has over 400 of these photos, and she's in various costumes. And you know, some of the pictures you probably would have seen, but you know, she's, she's not what we would consider as like the perfect structural features of today, but her look is extremely um, expressive and her personality comes out a lot through these photographs. But she goes to this party. Let's go back to the, the 9th of February, 1863. She goes to this party at the Chateau de, tu- de Tuileries. And she's dressed as the queen of Euteria. Her costume is set, like literally shocks people as she walks into the ball. It's so shocking that it causes an extreme uproar and spiteful rumour throughout Europe, not just Paris, throughout Europe. People are saying that she basically comes naked to this party. They're like saying, you know, who does she think she is? Her behavior 
and her nakedness, as they say, because there's no there's no particular picture of this costume, so we don't know. She could have, you know, people are jealous. She could have just looked great. She could have walked into the room and she looked fabulous. She showed a bit of ankle and they're like, oh, she's naked. Yeah, it's timing as well. So like if this yeah. was the red carpet today, it would be like she's wearing, you know, a fishing waiter. It's like, but for then you have to, a very conservative society. So yeah, I can imagine if she went for something a little bit yeah. risque. And would she would have. You just know, like, look at her pictures, look at her. It's, she loves to, you know, to throw the cat amongst the pigeons. She's, she loves it. So this gets back to her husband. Husband is extremely embarrassed. Husband is like, this is horrible. I am connected to this woman. She's already caused scandal because it's well known that she's a mistress to Napoleon Third wants a separation, like is fed up with her, right? Fed up with her, her vulgarity in his thoughts. So what does he do? He threatens her. He sends her a message and he says, continue this behavior, continue doing this, and I will take our son away from you. So what does an erratic woman do? when she's threatened with the removal of her son? Well, in her style, a gift is sent to her husband. And the gift is a photographic painted picture of herself. Now, this particular image can be seen in our show notes. It's one of my favourite images ever. And especially with the backstory, right? Because she's gone to a party. She's looked great at the party. Everybody's jealous and they've made all these spiteful rumors about her. Husband threatens to take the son away and she sends this photo. Now in it, I'm going to explain it. It shows number one, a menacing face. Now the only way that I can explain this face is the face of like a sibling when you've eaten the thing that they saved in the fridge. You know that, that face? That's the face that she's got on. Now, her hair at the same time has been left naturally, which is naturally curly, and it's out. So it's not styled in any way. It's just literally left out. On top of the wild hair is a gold neoclassical tiara. So it's got no, it's got no extra kind of frilliness to it. It's just an open work gold tiara. Now those kind of open work gold tiaras are usually used during victories of something, right? You put a gold tiara on your head, you come into Rome and you're like, I have won. We have gone to war and I have won. It's a victory tiara. She's wearing this with a dramatic gold pendant earrings that match the tiara and an enormous golden collar, which also like marries it all together. She's wearing a black velvet cloak, which conceals her body shape. So she's not like showing off any assets. It's just a literal black cloak, which goes down and a, a satin crepe skirt, which goes all the way 
with a train, but exposes her bare feet in black sandals. Now, what's really cool about this as well is peeping out from underneath the coat is a hand which is fisted and it has clutched inside of it a dagger. So remember the face that I told you, the sibling face from the fridge and the dagger coming out of the, underneath the cloak. And then she titles this picture that she sends to her husband, Vengeance. You've painted a really good image of that, Elise. I think it really is. I think it's definitely one to have a think about and then look it up and see how it is. The jewellery in it sounds beautiful. No, but I just like, you know, the audacity she has. I love, I love the the whole thing. Oh, there's a lot of talk on into it. Like she poses for a photograph. She's like... She it literally looks like she's she's about to kill somebody, right? With the dagger, everything, the face, it's like full of hate and full of vengeance. Titles it vengeance and sends it to the husband who is trying to threaten the removal of her child. I think it's one of the most coolest gifts in history that I can think of. Well worth looking up. And as, as you said, a link to this image will be in the, the show notes. So that is a tough one, Elise. But I suppose from my last one, I've gone with something which is just a beautiful, beautiful piece of jewellery. It has a lovely story behind it, a classic story of when this particular gift is given. And it comes from a very well-known collector of jewellery. And actually, this is not their only amazing piece. They actually had quite a lot. And funny enough, I, we have barely come across them in our podcast history which is surprising when you look up all of the different pieces that they had. But this particular couple, husband and wife, the husband is said to have had no place in American music. It is said that he was American music. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a pretty, that's a, I mean, that's a pretty strong statement. You know, naturally he was a composer in the early 20th century, which probably best encapsulates what he did. And it was Irving Berlin. He was, he was a musician. He got married uh, to Ellen McKay, who, needless to say, has Irish heritage. Um, in fact, her grandfather came from Dublin. Love and was it. one of the really early industrialists in America at one stage was the, one of the wealthiest men in the world, right? So, so needless to say, her father, obviously her grandfather's son, didn't approve of the marriage, right? Oh, right. He was seen, don't forget, he's a musician. So at that time, it wasn't seen as like a real job. But I mean, that is a story like as old as time is like mm. then the one who becomes super successful. And Irving Berlin obviously was massively successful, which is shown by the incredible collection that he got for Ellen McKay throughout their long, long, long marriage. In fact, they were married for 62 years. So, um, yeah, he died at 101 years of age, right? And when did she die? Shortly before that. She made it into her 90s, I believe. So, you know, great longevity in the family, for sure. Now, this particular gift was given on their 40th wedding anniversary, which, of course, is... Ruby. Ruby. And, you know, as an appreciation for this gemstone, the best rubies are typically Burmese. They're unheated 
a big one is over two carats. If you get one over two carats, yeah. that's a big Burmese ruby. This particular one was over four carats, 4.57 carats, pigeon blood red, which is the trade term to describe this particular red, red ruby, right? Some have a pinkish tone, some can have like a darker purplish tone, but this yeah. was red, red. If you're, if you're wanting to know more about rubies, we have a whole episode on rubies that you can listen to as well. Yes, and definitely worth listening. So this particular ruby was given a 40th wedding anniversary. And much like you described earlier, this one actually came up for sale recently as well. 12th of June, 2018 in Christie's guide price, 400 to 600,000 US dollars price realized. What do you think? How much was, how much was their estimate? Four to 600,000 USD. Uh, it's definitely gone over a million. Has to go over a million. I mean, like for four carat pigeon blood ruby with provenance, I'd say maybe even you're, two million. You, no, you're very close with your first instinct. 1.152 million. Uh, sorry, don't forget 2018 rubies have skyrocketed in the say, last today, five years. So. Today it would be definitely oh, like two million for it. See how much of a good investment that is. Well, I would have loved to buy that one. Um, but, you know, he, they also had a very famous Cartier emerald necklace that was sold. Big, massive one. They had. A, he was said to have a great eye for jewellery. and Sounds like it. Yeah. Gemstones particularly. Yeah. But the 40th wedding anniversary, such an important one. It's such a good ruby. It's just a perfect gift. To symbolise like longevity, love, beauty, passion, everything. Yes. Fabulous. And if you think you haven't heard of any songs by Irving Berlin, there's definitely one that you'll know. Go on, sing it. Uh, <laughs> you definitely won't know it if I sing it, right? <laughs> but it's called, it's White Christmas. So in case you're looking at a reference. Oh. Yeah. So it's uh, very well known. You have the voice of an angel, at least. That's an angel. An angel. So that was my third gift. So Love as it. I said, there's a great variety in the six gifts there, but we'd love to hear from you which one either you'd like to get yourself or that you thought was the most interesting story. And you can do that by going onto our Instagram at Courtville Antiques or emailing us at experts at courtville.ie. Well, we are going to wrap it up there. Really interesting stories you pulled together, Elise. It's it's a shame they're going to have to finish in second place, but... <laughs> I'm going to be dreaming about that ruby for a very long time. But if I don't win, Matthew, you might get your own vengeance portrait. Uh, so I'd recommend you vote for Elise, please, because I can see that face, you know. <laughs> uh, but I, she does have a cookie there today, so it should be all right. So... <laughs> But look, we're going to wrap up there. I really hope you enjoyed listening to those stories. I know I certainly enjoy listening to yours, Elise. So the links are in the notes of the podcast. Make sure you check them out. As always, thank you to my trusty co-host, Elise Ketcher. Thanks, Matt. And thanks to our podcast producer, dustpod.io. Until the next time, from me, your host, Matthew Weldon. See you soon. <laughs>